This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Um, we are visiting the Playhouse today, and I'm so happy to welcome my husband and friend, Bill Steinkellner, my one of my very oldest favorite friends, George McGrath, and one of my new favorite friends, Wayne White. So we're going to talk about all the things that, uh, all, all things Pee-wee. We're going to start today by talking about the origins of the original Pee-wee Herman show that became Pee-wee's Playhouse and the films and the, the legend. Um, and then we're going to go into our topic du jour, subversion. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and then we're going to open it up to all of you for all of your questions. So, origins. Paul Rubens came up with Pee Wee Herman in a class at The Groundlings, which is an improv troupe down in Los Angeles on Melrose. And it started with a Glenn plaid suit that Gary Austin, the founder of The Groundlings, lent to Paul, who was the only other person in the troupe who was as skinny as he was. Uh-huh. And Paul, it so legend says, developed the character Pee Wee Herman. When he put on this suit, he became that particular soupy sales TV, kids TV host character. Um, Paul is quoted as saying, Pee Wee sort of seemed like a gimmick, and that's what I was looking for a simple thing to hang a bunch of stuff on. And that's where Billy and Wayne and George came in. They were the stuff hangers that upon which Peewee's stuff was hung. Um, so in the 19, in 1980, I know we're going to parse that sentence. <laughs> in 1980, um, Peewee became a stage show at the Groundlings that quickly moved to the Roxy Theater on Sunset Boulevard. It was a parody, a complete parody a subversion of a ah, of a kid's show that um, <laughs> played, a, played at midnight and became an HBO special in 1981. 30 years later, stage, uh, stage production that began in LA moved to Broadway and really used pretty much the same script. So Bill, we're going to start with you. You were there for all of that. You were there at the genesis of Pee Wee. And as Paul's co-author and co-director and kind of improv facilitator, um, you had you had a finger in everything, and Paul, of course, had his finger and face in everything. Um, at the beginning, there were Lynn Stewart as Missy Vaughn, Phil Hartman as Captain Carl, John Paragon as Jombie, some of the same characters who later showed up. On the in, in the movies and on the TV show. So I want to ask you, Billy, what early memories do you have of the development of what would become this classic subversive ah, ah, <laughs> phenomenon across media? Um, good question. I, I would say, first of all, the, the very, very beginnings, except for what you just said, I think I've heard different variations of, so I'm not going to say any of those variations because I'm not really sure what was true. I, I know it's true for me, like some sort of philosophical statement. Uh, but I did, um, uh, he he did go from, from, from improvising that to finally doing sort of a one-man thing. A sh- I don't know what they call it, the groundlings, that, that sort of down in one, I guess, spot um, with the audience. We had audience participation as Pee Wee. 
and he would just do uh, one of the things he do a lot would be uh, his bag of tricks where he would just pull out different uh, toys and items like that. Uh, that were funny, like, you know, a fake dog do and that. But uh, I, I thought the really, you know, the, the thing that really sold me in a way was he had one thing. It was like a little like a uh, uh, rubber thing with a bulb, you know, that you, you press like this and it would pump air in there. And then it would be like a little like hopping frog. And it looked very cute, you know, like when he did that. And he said, well, watch this when you, when you do this. And he turned it upside down and he pumped it. And these these little legs went just like all up in the air like that. And it was hilarious. I mean, it was genuinely hilarious. And th- that in a, in a nutshell, I think, is peewee that's that's the 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 drive of peewee is that he's really interested in this thing that no one else notices uh sometimes and and he just goes with it um i I remember developing it um he he was he was in a cheech and chong movie at the time we would go to his trailer and develop it we would go to his house and pouring rain develop it we would develop it driving along in his car and paul rubens is like you think you know, oh my God, why don't I have life insurance when you're driving with him in those days? Maybe he's calmer now, but he, he drove like a maniac. And um, uh, it was that it, that sort of, you know, I actually been thinking about it because I went back and reread my diaries from that point period and all that. And and I, I was surprised and delighted that I actually had something. But I think I am famous for my laugh. I mean, I'm like famous. I've gotten awards from high schools for being in the audience. And that's a big thing because we, as we're developing it, I'm laughing along with it. Like directors I see with improv who don't laugh. I'm like, what's your problem? This is all they've got. All they've got to tell them this is funny is your laughter. And so, you know, if it's not really funny, you can change it later. But um, I, I think that was one of the reasons I got to, to be in there because Paul really knew what he wanted in a way, or, or he had a strong feeling what he wanted and, and uh, which is a great thing, but, uh, but he was also like that little boy who, who, you know, finds the frog, you know, fascinating. He finds everything fascinating. And so he will veer off, you know, from it and, and improv actors in general, like really like to create new stuff. They think that's the fun part. And in many ways it is, but you know, when you finally develop it, then you have to set it. And so I would watch that and I would type it up, whatever the scene was, the one with the Captain Carl and Miss Yvonne and type it up and, and, and then would show it to him and then we'd rehearse it. Um, and, and I'm reading the diaries in that period. I mean, it was insane. I'm like, I have a constant headache. We were, we're rehearsing until four 30 in the morning. I mean, and just like really insane stuff. And, you know, rehearsals are always insane, but usually have a script. In this case, you have this sort of script that's there. It's not, but it's not gelling exactly. And you have to kind of figure all those things out. Um, do you want to hear something I know we wrote from that period? Very short. Sure. And then I, and then I want to, well, you know what, actually, let's hold that for a second. I want to come back to that because yeah. something that Billy said about having a constant headache um, reminded me of something that I read you said, George, where the first year of filming the Pee Wee show. And I'm going to go back into a little bit of, of history on the Pee Wee show, but you described it as a sweatshop. So. <laughs> well, the building, when you, when the elevator would accidentally stop at the floor below, it literally was a sweatshop. It was just <laughs> millions of women sitting at sewing machines. <laughs> and you go, what's going on here? And it was, it had no air conditioning. So they had to run this gigantic hose from the street 
and it was always like boiling hot. And <laughs> yeah, it, the, the, the hose from the street was classic. And there was a man that was attached to it who was also a very funny character. Um, yeah, yeah, it was, I remember Shirley Stoller who played Mrs. Steve in the first season she was always, she would go, I'm drowning in my own moisture. <laughs> <laughs> when you ask her to do something, she'd do, okay, spin around, she'd do this. <laughs> it was just boiling hot. <laughs> and it was, uh, it was filthy. Uh, the the, the, the uh, space we were in, it was just really filthy loft that never really got clean. So it was grime everywhere. It Did was you see the picture I put up yesterday of you, Wayne, in the original like artist <laughs> rendering room? It was like <laughs> that. Yeah, our horrible little hovel that we would go to. Um, yeah, it was it was fun. It was downtown New York funky, and I think that that those conditions and that context lent a lot of the soul to that first season because we were just all a bunch of downtown New York artists working in a loft making a fake kitty show. So you were down. You were a downtown artist who never had Wayne, who never had any intention of becoming an iconic puppet character like Randy or Dirty Dog, did you? Uh, no, I did not want to be an iconic puppet character. No, I didn't. I I did do. I was I was a cartoonist and an illustrator, and that's what I where I thought my path was going to be. But at the same time, on the side, I was doing these crazy subversive puppet shows uh, on my own as a, just an amateur at, at house parties and on the street and sometimes in galleries. So and that's how I got the peewee job because I had this side gig as a puppeteer. And uh, yeah, so no, I, I, I went into, I went into peewee with no pro real professional uh, show business experience. And I think 80% of the art department was the same way. The actress had experience, but the art department, we were all just a bunch of ragtags, you know. And you ragtags walked out, you, you walked in with no experience and you walked out with how many Emmys? <laughs> Three. <laughs> Very nice. nice. Well Very done. Won your categories? You're son of a bitch. <laughs> so, George, you were not a new, you are a New Yorker, but you, were, you did not come into this as a New York downtown artist. You, no. Tell us, tell us how I, you came into Pee Wee. I came into it. Well, Paul came to see the Groundling show. Tracy Newman brought him to see the show. And I had never met him. I, the first Groundling show I ever saw, he was doing the Pee Wee character and throwing candy out into the audience. Mm -hmm. was right. very funny. But he came backstage and said, who wrote this? Who wrote this? Who wrote this? And he liked the stuff I wrote. And the following week, I get a phone call. Hello, this is Paul Rubin. <laughs> and I said, sure. I had written a few episodes of a show called Kids Incorporated. So it wasn't the first kids show I ever had anything to do with. But uh, so we were, when we were writing them, I would do puppet voices, you know, as we're reading the scripts and whatever. And he brought me to New York to come and do those puppets, <clears throat> you know. Um, so did you come, so you were brought out to New York as a writer and a performer, correct? Mostly as a performer because everything was written. I mean, there were things that I would help him rewrite or the theme song was written while we were there. But all the scripts were written when we went to New York. And yeah, I, he brought me mostly to be a uh, voiceover artist and 
I had never been a puppeteer, so my puppeteering skills were slow. <laughs> uh, we, all of our skills were, were you know, <laughs> I mean, we were learning I, on the job. I could do the flower, you know, <laughs> but yeah. I had Globy, and Globy was a remote controlled, remote out of control. <laughs> his mouth would just go bip, 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 all the time and he would start spinning and I'm like, I'm not doing anything. I'm not doing anything. Um, so he was kind of hard to operate. And then Countess was this enormous cow that went over my body. And then I had to manipulate the eyes with a stick and this solid plastic mouth that I, you know, <laughs> it's my fault. <laughs> I built that puppet. I built Countess, and I didn't know what I was doing at all. And it was the a second, torture device. The second year, Van Snowden, who was HR Puff and stuff, a wonderful, wonderful puppeteer, volunteered to get inside the body. So all I had to do was go from the side. Nice, nice. It, it also had uh, sticks on the ears, rods on the ears, so the yeah. ears could twitch. Which I barely ever touched. Well, we would have a second ear guy. When you were inside, somebody else would be oh, doing okay. yeah. yeah. The ear guy. I remember trying to build that cow because he wanted a realistic cow. And man, it is really hard to make a realistic cow. Yeah. You know? It was a beautiful puppet. I mean, it's a beautiful puppet. looking like a horse. You know, I really struggled with that face. But I was just watching Countess and, and the cowboy. And it does. It works. It, it's she yeah. got the pearls. Nice. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> nice. It really, just was at a really hard mouth to operate. Yeah, I know. I, I know. I made that mouth badly. Badly. I can say that about all the puppets I made. I made them badly. <laughs> Not the flowers. The flowers were gold. I didn't make the flowers. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> nice save, George. How about, how about Randy? How, what, did you make Randy badly? I made Randy the first year. This is one of the stories I tell all the time. I carved him out of a big block of white pine. His head weighed about 10 pounds. I didn't know what I was doing. He was like, you ever made marionettes before? Oh, yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. I carved him, and I would drop him into the scene, and his head was so heavy and out of balance, he would just start spinning like the exorcist. <laughs> and I'd be like, I don't my other marionettes desperate and uh he was he was a piece of folk art basically on a 12 foot strings dropped him down to into the scene he was very uh he was uh very hard to operate that's me up in the uh rafters. oh yeah that's nice. me in rafters working randy in the first season there in that new york loft that's great in the series so you would just drop him down voice him from above they'd have you mic'd yeah, I was my and we did all we hardly ever went back in. We did live voices for all the all the puppets. Yeah. yeah. And while we're with you, Wayne, Dirty Dog, because you're a musician yourself. How much of your own um how much did you contribute to the puppet band? I'm not I'm a I'm a I'm an amateur musician. I'm not a real musician, but I love music and uh I had a lot of fun uh, designing uh the uh the uh, puppet band. That's the original drawing I did oh, nice. for uh, for uh, Dirty Dog, and uh, it was the design. The three big designers on the show was Gary Pander, Rick Heitzman, and me. And uh, Gary, of course, was from the original stage show. And uh, Gary brought Rick in, and uh, Rick did a lot of the sets, and Gary did a lot of the sets. But I did most of the puppets. 
and um, designed them and, and built them. And then when we moved to California the second season, we rebuilt the puppets using professional puppeteer puppet makers in LA. And they, they, they kept my look, but they were so much better uh, designed as uh, operational, you know, so. But uh, I, uh, Dirty Todd was probably one of my favorites along with Randy. It was fun to work with uh, Rick Heitzman and then Allison Warwick as Chicky Baby. It was very, always very musical, you know, there was always kind of rhyming and it was, it was really a lot of fun to do those three together. And we should, we just, as long as we're talking about Dirty Dog and Randy, we cannot forget Mr. Kite because we love <laughs> Yeah, <Mr>. Rain! <laughs> rain, baby, rain! <laughs> yeah. Um, I just, so just to bring us up to speed on the Playhouse, Pee Wee's Playhouse ran from 1986 to 1990, five seasons, 45 episodes, so many Emmys. Uh, George and Wayne, you were both there from the very beginning. Wayne, you were picked up off the street as, as you know, as an artist, as a delinquent artist. And George, yeah. you came over to to be a cow that looked like a horse, right? Yeah. Um, it, was, it started all in California. We had our offices. The writers had their offices on Sunset Boulevard at first. And then we all moved to Paul's house because it was easier for Paul. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> and, so... Uh, the five of us, there were five of us, myself, John Paragon, Max Robert, uh, Mike Varhall, and Paul. And we wrote the first season starting in this little office. And Wayne's, I didn't know Wayne then, but Wayne was a constant participant via the fax machine of pictures, drawings of different puppets. There'd be like six Globies for Paul to pick from. Yeah. And then he'd want six more. <laughs> um, and he was picking the puppet as we were making them up yeah and i was i was hired in new york city through a production by a production company called broadcast arts and a wonderful woman named prudence fenton who went on to become my champion in a lot of showbiz endeavors hired me at broadcast arts when i showed her my portfolio of puppets and stuff i'd done one other kids show before that in nashville a local kids show called mrs kabobble's caboose and you can, you can find that on YouTube nice. still. And I had my Mrs. Kabobble's Caboose portfolio with me, and Prudence really dug it. And she gave me a big break. She gave me – I owe Prudence so much. And if she's this out there right ass. now, thank you, Prudence. She had so Same much to do with the theme song, with the look of it, with the Penny cartoon. Those were all her babies, pretty much. Nice. She was fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah. She's one of them. She's oh, go ahead. I'm sorry, Wayne. Yeah, Prudence is definitely one of the founding father uh, women, of a very important person in the playhouse. Yeah. Um. So, George, you mentioned the song. You wrote the song, correct? Yeah, I wrote the, I'll tell you the whole thing. Paul takes me into his dressing room and he says, you want to write a theme song for the show? Because I had done a lot. I had written a couple of little songs, but I had done a lot of song improv at the Growlings. And I said, Sure. I said, what do you want it to be? And he went like this. I want it to be something like Betty Boopy. Come on in and pull yourself up a chair. <laughs> and I went, okay. And so I went back to my hotel room and I used that as the opening line. And then I wrote the rest of it. He said he wanted to include the names of all the puppets and not the live characters. So I did that. Uh-huh. And so I sang it. I, I wrote it up on the legal pad that I sent you a picture of. 
Um, oh yeah, we have that in our um, on our site. And so I brought it in the next day and I sang it to him and he loved it. And then we sang it into a little tape recorder. And basically what we sang to the tape recorder is what it turned out to be. We sent it to Mark Mothersbaugh. He didn't change the tune. He just orchestrated it and sort of, you know, put the music behind it. And then that was that. And then a couple of weeks later, Paul had asked Cindy Lauper to record it. So we went to CBS uh, on 57th Street. Cindy Lauper shows up with this girl named Ellen Foley. And Cindy says she doesn't want to do it because she's trying to change her image from girls just want to have fun to true colors. She wants to be taken seriously as a singer and blah, blah, blah. So she had this girl. I don't mean blah, blah, blah in a bad way. I was totally like, ooh, Cindy Lauper's here. (laughs) (laughs) Um, She had Ellen Foley sing it. And Ellen Foley was fine, but she wasn't Cindy Lauper. And Paul just twisted Cindy Lauper's arm. (laughs) And so Cindy Lauper did it, but she made Ellen Foley get the credit in the credits. So it says on the show, it says theme song sung by Ellen Foley. And Cindy never really, I've never seen an interview where she spoke about it, but that's what really happened is that she sang it. And wow, it's she really sang it. Yeah. That's a complicated story if you're Ellen Foley, I think. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I didn't didn't really know that. I didn't know that. That's wild. Well, George makes up stuff too. A lot of stuff, especially (laughs) about my songs. (laughs) You you know, the the way George describes how that song came about, that was Paul's working method a lot. And back to what Bill said earlier, the fact that he started an improv and of course the uh, sacred mantra of improv is yes and, right? You just ex- keep expanding. And that's how Paul dealt with a lot of the creative decisions. I would send him a picture, you know, fax him a picture of Globe, and he'd go, yes, and more. And so <laughs> he was given that improv spirit and that improv interrogation to everything. And it really was subversive. <laughs> um. Let's talk about Globy's nose because that came up yesterday. And we have some, I think we have some art for that. <laughs> so what happened? What the heck happened to Globy? He got a nose job after the first season. He got a, fa- a whole complete facial redo. <laughs> when I when I looked for the picture of the original Globy yesterday, I was like, ooh, is that what Globy used to look like? It just <laughs> I not even remembered him that way. But I do remember that after the first season. There were a lot of things from the first season that Paul didn't like from the broadcast arts people. So the first episode of season two, Paul and I wrote season two, just the two of us. And the first episode was remake over make playhouse makeover or something like that. And Paul was in work clothes and things were being pulled out of the walls. <laughs> Everything was being changed around so that Paul would like it better. And one of the things he didn't like was Globy. So when, <laughs> when he hated Globy for some reason, maybe the fact that Globy was always going. But so Paul went to the place, I guess, where they were building the new Globy and he took the clay and he made Globy's nose the way he wanted Globy to be. So he had a totally different nose, totally different eyes. He was much less round looking and more sort of Mediterranean kind of of looking. Um, But there were a lot of things that Paul didn't like from season one on the set. 
puppets that didn't make it that he put in clocky and flory yeah. and a lot of Ooh. a lot of set issues that he changed in that first episode and under the guise of playhouse makeover yeah really i don't like this get it out of here makeover he took out mutant toys and replaced it with clocky a second yeah. that famous circle thing yeah. And and yesterday when we were talking, I asked about the mutant toys because if because in the first episode that we all watched together from the first season, which was the Countess and the Cowboy, I think, um, we see the mutant toys. And I thought, oh, I wonder if you guys got that from Sid in Toy Story or if Sid in Toy Story got that from you. And the answer is. Well, the answer is, I'm sorry, but Pixar totally ripped us off. <laughs> ripped us off on Mutant Toys. When I saw that in, in Toy Story, I was like, oh, man. I mean, come on. Yeah. That was, um, that was, our, that was uh, I didn't have anything to do with Mutant Toys, so I really wasn't too mad. But <laughs> I was, you know, yeah, that was originally a Pee Wee concept. And, uh, you can't blame them. They they can barely make ends meet. Yeah, I know. I know. It's like, you know, come on, give them a break. Yeah. And also the Martian. Oh, yeah. Uh, Roger the Monster, the big one. Thing. That's another thing Pixar ripped off for Monsters, Inc. And that was my design. That was, and I was Roger the Monster. I was also in that uh, latex torture device thing that uh, had two appearances, uh, Roger the Monster. Oof. This is the life of an artist. Either they're ripping you <laughs> off or they're ripping off your clay nose. <laughs> uh, I loved every minute of it. The, the original uh, appearance, I'll just say this, the original appearance of Roger the Monster was in the first season. I don't know which episode. But uh, if you look closely, when I'm hopping, my uh, Chuck Taylor Converse, red Converses can be seen in a, in a, in a, for about a second. The rubber lifts up and you can see a tennis shoe real quick. That's that, that's an Easter that's an Easter egg. Yeah, Definitely. You yeah, th that's like you can only find that here, right? Yes. Right, Wayne. That's that's info that's only here in this valuable valuable Zoom. Um, here's, here's a here's my original drawings for Flory. Oh, Flory. Oh, wow. Yeah. Nice. Three of them, and Paul picked that one. And uh, it's, it's funny because uh, George came up with Flory, and he thought. Flory was just going to be a piece of linoleum or something. <laughs> and I came in with this big fractured wooden face because Paul's bedroom had a fractured wooden floor. But Paul liked it. And, it was uh, great. It was great. And yeah, Kevin, Kevin, Carlson, Kevin Carlson was the voice of Flory. And he, that was one of his best things. Yeah. Yeah. It was a great croaky voice. I, I would work that puppet with Kevin underneath the floor. I'd do the spinning eyeballs and he would work the mouth. Um, I want to segue us from the origins, which was great. Thank you. The um, I, I, I do love this. Gary Panter, who was one of your fellow visual artists, um, described it as the hippie dream, a show made by artists. So that's a that's a cool thing. Um, I want to um, segue into some of the more elements of the show. But. Um, I want, so I want to I want to round back to you, Billy, and ask you going all the way back in the '80s. This was originally designed as a kids show for adults to be performed after hours with drinks. 
on the Sunset Strip, correct? Oh, well, at the Groundlings and then at the Sunset Strip. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, as I recall, it, the, he wanted to sell it as a late night show, which everybody always did because, you know, like, ah, it'll be cheap and blah, 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 you know, and that's it was never sold as a kid show. Uh, it's, it's kind of a frightening kid show in many ways, uh, but not, not, as, not the Saturday morning, but the, the stage version. Um, I, I, I wanted to say that uh, with the uh, when you're talking about like being on the show and all that, you know, playing something in the show. At one point, I think before we're going to Roxy, Paul informs me that I'm understudying Captain Carl, like Phil Hartman. And I'm like, <laughs> sorry, I, I, I was terrified. And luckily, I never had to do it because I was literally I would like try to stay out of sight most of the time just so he wouldn't go like, hey, maybe you can replace uh, Paul uh, Phil tonight. So anyway, go ahead. Um, okay. Um, so one of the things I was doing a lot of fun reading and uh, Jonah Weiner in New York magazine, New York Times Magazine on uh, 2016 talked about the anarchic queerness of the show. And he said one of the greatest achievements of Playhouse was that it created a place where desires are not policed, otherness is not demonized, gender roles are juggled, and erotic energies attach where they will. And he goes on to give certain examples. He was talking about Reba and breaking down the male lady um, long before long before we were talking about gender in ways that were off the binary. Um, we had Jambi, who was one of the first men wearing lipstick on network TV, much less on Saturday morning. In one of the episodes, we saw cowboy you know, Cowboy Curtis, when he gets his new boots, they are quite blingy. Um, we have Tito and his Speedo. Um, we have in the episode, the Countess and the um, Cowboy uh, Pee-wee be, pretending to be Miss Yvonne and really getting into character. <laughs> so <laughs> I wanted to talk a little bit about that element of, um, you know, was that was it intentional to really be pushing the boundaries as far as you could knowing you were on Saturday morning television on CBS? I think one thing that Paul was very big on and I think groundbreaking on was the diversity of the cast and the kinds of characters that didn't call for diversity, but he made them diverse. And there wasn't really a gay character in the show, per se, um, but there were a lot of <laughs> gay jokes. I mean, you mentioned Cowboy Curtis's boots. and yeah. <laughs> like, boots. Oh, you have got big feet. Well, you know what they say, big feet, big boots. I mean, <laughs> there was a lot of those kind of jokes that were sort of in the gay world. Um I think it's really just who the writers were. I mean, there was a lot of, I'm gay, John Paragon was gay, you know, other gay, Max Robert was gay. Um, I think our sense of humor was gay-ish. <laughs> you know, so um, I think that's why it was. And Paul had no qualms about flipping anything. I mean, there's that whole sequence in Pajama Party where, he marries a fruit salad. <laughs> That's a whole different fruit, sexuality. And he yeah. totally <laughs> plays it as if he's really in love with the fruit salad. And the fruit <laughs> salad has a little veil. And everybody there is like, ooh, oh. <laughs> I mean, he, he didn't mind 
screwing up with people's perceptions of what seems right. Um, I think and, that was that, and, mostly. And, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I think that's mostly what it was. Is he he was always eager to flip expectations of of what was going to happen. Yeah. And you know, Paul was such an androgynous character himself as Pee Wee that everything seemed fine. You know, it didn't seem like, <laughs> it didn't seem like Pee Wee Herman ever thought like, gee, sex. It di- wasn't a topic for him. You know what I mean? It wasn't a point of view that he had. So everything, the non-point of view was what made it so open to so many different things. Well, the he most we had is sometimes that confusion, yeah. like in, in any in any single thing where you, you know, you think like, well, they're about to, you know, put him in the straitjacket now if he keeps that confusion up. Well, it was ambiguous. I mean, he did lust after Miss Yvonne every now and then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Everybody but, did. But then when Cowboy Turtles tries to kiss him, he gets all mad and 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 and, and uh, embarrassed. And he's all, <laughs> get off. Come on, stop. You know, he's a little kid again. You know, he's like, stop fooling around. And, uh, <laughs> Well, yeah. in the in the in the stage it's show adorable. with Captain Carl, I always thought it was you know, he's playing the, the the gruff guy, like terrified of women, which goes back to what nineteen <laughs> thirties. I mean, the cowboys, the straight and silent type, would be like, "Oh, howdy, ma'am," because you know, shaking in their boots uh-huh. because a woman is around, which I thought was fascinating. Everybody was kind of a child. All the characters were pretty much a child's version of what an adult would be. But at the same time, there was it was totally for adults. It was made for adults. It was made for specifically at that time, the baby boomer generation who'd grown up on kids TV, who grew up on all that cheap local kitty TV programs that every city had that ran the Popeye cartoons. It was all about that. It was all about us laughing at the past. And the stage show, you're right, the original stage show was very adult and very funny and and really went darker. And uh, it was yeah, it was dark. It blew my mind when I saw it in Tennessee on HBO. And <laughs> ever my wildest dreams that I think I'd be working for that, or working with the great Gary Panner, which I can't say enough about. Gary was the Amazing. original stage show, stage show designer, graphic designer, a hero of mine. That I that's another dream came true that I got to. Uh, know him, become friends with him, and work on the show. It was a real, we, I really bonded with those guys on that show. And it, that, that freedom that Paul brought to it, the, the openness about sexuality and gender roles and stuff, included weirdo hillbilly artist boys like me and Gary and Rick too. It was just a complete crazy mix. Yeah. And uh, Paul was our champion, you know. And, and one of the things too that, I don't think the kids show was ever a parody of a kids show. It was, there no, were things in here that were tributes to kids show. Yeah. We had a magic screen because Paul had some, I don't know what show it was, but some show when he was growing up had a magic screen. Sure, I feel good. Show, show little documentaries and little, fun, <laughs> you know, things like that. His, his use of old cartoons, the King cartoons would come in and, drag in some cartoon from 1946, <laughs> you know, and Paul, no. Paul yeah. admired that stuff. He, yeah. he loved that stuff. So it never was really a parody of a kid show. And also the quality of the actors, 
you know, Esapath and Merkinson brought so much to what could have been nothing as Reba the Mail Lady, mm-hmm. Larry Fishburne as Cowboy Curtis. I mean, they were they played everything so well. And Lynn Stewart as Missy Vaughn. Phil and Hartman. Phil Hartman as Captain Carl in the first season. And Vic Trevino in the remaining seasons as uh, Ricardo. Um, they, they were just so good. They were just so invested in making it be good. And they were all good actors. So everything, they, nobody played it for, you know, Lynn Stewart legitimately played the most beautiful puppet woman in the land. <laughs> yes. She, she played it as if she was the most beautiful, literally the most beautiful. Every puppet would have to gasp when she came in. And she was just, she just played it so wholeheartedly, as did they all. That that's what made it more, less of a parody. It made yeah. it seem less like we were taking a shot at kids shows as opposed to creating this world of these wonderful characters. Well, yeah. and she played it as like Glinda the Good Witch, but also, you know, some Sandra of the... Yeah. No, I think it's more like those 1940s, uh, you know, tragic actors. Susan Hayworth, you know, like on a dime, she would go to that. Really? Uh-huh. She pretty? You know, it was so funny. Yeah, you're right. It was, it was more than a parody. It wasn't cynical. It had heart, you know, and that's what came through big time. It, we weren't cynical about it. We weren't cynical about our designs. We loved what we were doing. Uh, the, the actors loved what they were doing. It was, it was a very positive vibe. Um, my fellow professor, Constance Penley, hi, Connie, is asking... How and why did CBS let you get away with all the double entendre and sexual shenanigans? Two words, Judy Price. Judy Price was, I mean, I worked on many shows afterwards and I never ever worked with any network executive like her. The only censorship there ever was the whole time that I was there was when Pee Wee came out of the bathroom with toilet paper stuck to his shoe. (laughs) <laughs> they didn't want us to have pee we have toilet paper stuck to a shoe. That's the only note we ever got from them regarding censoring something or questioning it. She was, I worked with her again on Writers in the Sky. She was just fantastic. She'd come over to the office and holler and go, how's my little geniuses? Who wants to go to lunch? And she was just, she was just so into it. And it was her vision that let it happen because you know, Paul had a lot of things that cost a lot of money that were being approved and whatever. And like I said, no censorship at all. No questioning. Nobody ever said, uh, I don't think you can really say that. And she had a little team that worked with her, but she was the queen of it. And she was so, so behind the show. It was fantastic. It was. I never had that experience again with anyone but her. No, that wouldn't happen today. Yeah. That's great. And to have an executive just say, you know, how's my little geniuses? Yeah. And let me take you out to lunch. Exactly. <laughs> Very rare. Exactly. Very precious. She um, was wonderful. Connie has another excellent question that I want to ask. I want to put to all of you. Um, so Pee Wee's Playhouse parodied Saturday morning children's television shows, but also the advertising element that had been embedded into those same shows that was usually divided into girl products and boy products with a strict gender divide. And 
she's asking, can you talk about the way that the Playhouse criticized and set and sent up, did a send up of the gender divide in advertising and programming for children? Hmm. Well, there was certainly a, a gender challenge. I mean, she, he challenged the role, like Dixie, the cab driver, the first season. She was very like masculine and, and, and swaggering and, and stuff like that. Um, but that doesn't really address the question. You're talking about like... Uh, I mean, I think we can expand the question just to say, to, to talk about how... Pee-wee, well, and, and I think we sort of did um, touch on some of the different ways in which the characters um, and the stories do well, gender I th expectations. I think Pee-wee was all about let's put on a show and let's play with toys and let's have pure joy and let's be silly, which is something that is not taught to young boys at all in our culture uh, on a general basis. He made it okay for... Uh, say a young young boys to 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 like to be silly and, and uh play with crazy toys and stuff like that I, I, I that might not be such an issue now but when i was growing up that was the no-no you know you don't act silly you don't run around crazy like that you know you act like a man you play sports you know i don't want to see you uh you know maybe that's just my hangouts <laughs> But I think he gave the I think he gave permission for kids to act silly. And a lot of kids are oppressed when they act silly. They're told to snap out of it. Don't be silly. Yeah. yeah. And that's kind of for me, that that was a real uh, incredible, joyful thing that he brought that I think kind of maybe not so much now, but back then or earlier in the in our culture it would break down the gender roles because girls are allowed a little more fun have to a little more fun and boys are expected to be more stoic and uh you know not indulge in their silly side so i, I thought that was a real cool thing um, um i want to yeah. read this oh go ahead I no i'm green i want to read this quote because i thought this was really interesting too and it's perspective i never thought of um, I think this is from Joan Weiner's article also in the New York Times Magazine in 2016. And he's talking about um, how uh, Rubens revitalized Saturday morning programming, which was at that time a wasteland of cheap animated series that were mostly glorified toy commercials, by discovering this aesthetic wormhole that connected late night comedy from the Roxy and the Groundlings to early morning children's programming. The sensibility of stoned 20 somethings at midnight, he realized, marked by an unreasonable love of repetition, absurdity, narrative disjuncture and jokes that either last way too long or flip by in short attention span blinks, had a significant overlap. He says that, that late night um, sensibility had a significant overlap with that of little kids in their pajamas, laughing themselves silly over sugar breakfast cereal. Quote, those are the times of day when there aren't any rules, Rubin said of morning and night, standing as they do at idiosyncratic opposition to the more conventional programming on prime time and in between. He said, rules are for other times, not for Saturday morning. Does that, is that kind of the ethos that you were developing under? There were no rules to what happened on Peewee's Playhouse. I mean, it was a grab bag. There were so many things. You could cut away to the refrigerator vegetables doing a little stick and the dinosaur family and the puppet band. 
th there was always something going on and there weren't rules as to what had to happen. The, there were stories, gentle stories, I like to say, that were in the show, but a gentle story about, come on, let's have a pajama party could turn into marrying fruit salad. I mean, unpredictable things happened every other minute on Pee Wee's Playhouse. And even the way Paul would react to something. could He could be really mad about something. He could be really bratty about something. He could be deliriously happy about something. And you never really quite knew what you were going to get, even within the basis of a storyline. Um, it was completely unpredictable for kids. And I think just that the juxtaposition of this happening, that happening, this happening, that happening. Now what? Let's go over here. Let's see what this is doing. Let's go over here. It was that sort of thing that you just never knew what was going to happen. And when we were first writing the shows, most of the scripts were just about, okay, now let's find a place for the dinosaur family. Let's find a place for the cartoon guy, King Cartoons to come in. Um, and it was just a way to combine all these numerous bits that were in the show. And uh, it was less about what's the story about. The story was just something to hang all these little bits on. So it was very unpredictable. Um, I, I want to quote Judd Apatow. <laughs> he says, when I was younger, I didn't put my finger on why I like Pee Wee so much. But looking back, it's simple. It's a group of strange people who are having a great time and being nice to each other. Yeah. Let me just add also that Mary, Mary Poppins, I forgot about Mary Poppins, huge, huge impact on my childhood. I worshiped that movie. I drew pictures of it constantly. I wanted to be Bert with the one man band. I wanted to draw the pictures on the sidewalk and jump into the pictures. The pictures <laughs> real. And that's what PB's Playhouse was for me, was getting to draw that picture and jump into that picture. That's like a, a fantasy that's stuck in my head. Also, Viewmaster. I wanted to go into those wow. Viewmaster scenes that I would see as a kid. I was like, what is this? It was so <laughs> it blew my mind. It's a time machine? Especially those little tableaus they'd create from flat three uh, cartoons and make them three-dimensional like bugs this is the real bugs bunny this is what he where he really lives and they got pictures of the real bugs bunny running down a road and just like what the, so the playhouse was like my view master also it was my bird drawing on the sidewalk and view master those were the two things that really blew my mind as a kid and i thought about those all the time while i was doing peewee definitely We've talked, I, I, I want to bring it home with one last question for all three of you. And it's inspired by George, you saying the reason Paul hired you was because of what was your favorite thing in the original show that Billy was on. But I want to ask each one of you, what was, what in your memory is your favorite thing that you contributed? Whether it's a line or an image or a character, what's your favorite thing that you contributed to the Pee Wee Herman show? And we'll bring it home with that. Uh, I have one. Playhouse. Uh, so there was there was a se segment or a section called uh, pen pals from around the world, which is such a kid's thing in here. Pen pals from around the world, and uh, then they they read these pen pals from around the uh, the world. They read the short letters, and uh, this is my favorite because I know I wrote this whole thing. Uh, it's, uh, mailman Mike gives him a letter and he says, "Here's a letter from Israel." 
And Pee Wee says, Shalom, uh, uh, reading the letter. Shalom, Pee Wee. My name is Shlomo. I'm nine and have been in the army two years already. If you want to know more about my country, just read the Bible. <laughs> I remember that. That was a good one. Funny. George, what's yours? What's I would yours? have to say two things. One was the theme song, of course. The right. other was there was an episode that was written on the season Paul and I wrote called Pee Wee's Country Cousin. And Pee Wee's Country Cousin was like from Tennessee or something. And he comes to visit the playhouse and Paul was going to be like the Patty Duke show. Paul was going to play both parts. Yes. And the Friday before the Monday that was supposed to film, Paul said, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. <laughs> and I said, what do you mean you don't want to do it? Oh, I'm, too, I'm too exhausted. I don't want to do it. So I had to write an episode over the weekend for them to start shooting on Monday called Tons of Fun. <laughs> and it was literally, it was like, hey, Lynn, what do you want to do? Oh, I, I haven't gotten to clog dance. <laughs> it was just, it was things like that. Like, what would be fun? With no, I know I, I knew I had a weekend to do it and it wasn't supposed to be great, but it was really fun for me to write it because it was just, and it's still one of my favorite episodes because it's just that. Tons of fun. Tons of fun. Anything? You know, we're watching tonight. <laughs> like I've got it all queued up. We're watching tons of fun. Um, Wayne, what's yours? I have to say two things also. Uh, my con contribution to the set design, my specialty was the wallpaper designs. And nearly all the wallpapers are my design. And every shot has some kind of scheme of mine in the background. So I'm really proud of that. I really... That's kind of my pervasive touch to the set. And then uh, I guess Randy is, would have to be my favorite puppet I did. Uh, the fact that I went into it so incompetent, but uh, it scared me so much that I learned quickly how to do it right. And, and I did, I got better and better at it. I'm proud that I hung in there and didn't freak out. And uh, it became one of the, it's, everybody says it's, you know, everybody says it's their favorite puppet that talks to me. Of course, that's why, you know. But, but it was fantastic. And it served a great purpose for the writing because as bad as Pee Wee would be about anything, he didn't have to be Randy bad. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Randy came in and just had the worst, most horrible schemes. Yeah. That got Paul to be the, the good guy when yeah. it Otherwise, it would be people going, let's do this crazy thing. It would be like yeah. Randy trying to make him do it. He'd be like, no, Randy. Yeah. Any performer can tell you it's a blast to play the villain. It's so much fun to play bad. Yeah. And I really grew in my own humble way. I grew as an actor and a performer doing Randy with my scenes with Paul. I got we I, I learned about rhythm and how to work a scene. And, how, you know, it, I, I was I really advanced a lot as as a performer through Randy and yeah. he was funny and, you know, it was great. It was yeah. just uh, some, plus it was something I never thought I would do ever. And uh, it was wonderful. Well, you, you have a real Southern accent, which you very seldom see. Yeah. See, I was trying to do it, but you have a real one and it's. Yeah. Well, you know what? I tried to get them to let me do Randy as with a Southern accent, but they wouldn't go for it. Because all the bullies I knew had Southern accents. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, everybody. Thank you so much, Wayne and Billy and George. This was wonderful. Thanks, Sherry. Thank you, Sherry. Bye-bye, everybody.
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.